Cool. You got a house with a water view, but it looks and smells like garbage. We're here with Kevin McAllister again, the founder of the environmental advocacy group Defend H2O. Hey, Kevin. How are you? Good, J.D. <laughs> and we're standing alongside an impoundment. Basically, it's a man-made lake, and from a distance, it looks like a nice spot for some fishing or kayaking, but up close, it's uh, not so inviting. This is uh, an altered environment, and much of Long Island is. This is straight-up gross. The water is mucky and green. It looks like sludge. And being here is kind of eerie. This place is totally void of any other signs of wildlife. During colonial times, uh, mills were installed. So we were damming up these streams uh, to you know, create the grist mills. Um, and the result are these large impoundments that have been maintained over the centuries. And ultimately, they are a contradiction to a natural system. A natural system. That's the relationship between the species in an ecosystem and the surrounding environment. They depend on one another. Extremely hot water is flowing downstream, affecting a native trout stream that is dependent on cold water. Um, it's really problematic. Flowing water is cold water. Since the water here at the impoundment is just sitting still, the sun is heating it like a greenhouse. It's also a breeding ground for invasive plants and pests. But these uh, invasives that like the warm water and also uh, rich uh, sediment soils, you know, you have muck in here, ultimately will give rise where they uh, dominate uh, the surface area. American suburbia was born on Long Island, but some of these communities have roots that predate the United States. Last episode, we spoke to members of the Shinnecock tribe, whose ancestors encountered the first white settlers on eastern Long Island. As people settled to the west, they started transforming the environment to meet their pre-industrial needs with water mills. This inland dam was built in 1739 near a small mill community in Yapank, which is actually an indigenous word for bank of the river. The dam was a solution at the time that gave those first settlers the best chance at survival in this new world. Now, it's unsustainable. Kevin says the only way forward is to allow the area to return to nature. You know, the, the true remedy here is to allow reversion back to stream flow where the impoundment would contract, uh, shrink down, uh, exposing historic wetland soils and what's called the seed bank, uh, the existing seeds that are in these soils. Uh, the emergent of uh, a freshwater marsh would be rapid. This is Higher Ground from WSHU Public Radio. I'm J.D. Allen. Our journey together started seven episodes ago. We've seen how troubling coastal flooding is and how the pressure of climate change impacts infrastructure, tourism, farming, and wildlife, as well as environmental justice and social responsibility. This episode, We'll visit several places on Long Island where our relationship with nature is being challenged in ways big and small. And we'll explore the lessons from those places that may redefine our way of life. Sharing science matters more now than ever. 
The Alda Center for Communicating Science helps scientists and researchers share their work and its significance in powerful and engaging ways. In this way, we can all explore the wonders and joys of science together. Explore our professional development workshops and graduate programs to discover new ways to build trust and engagement in science. Learn more at aldacenter.org. On a small scale, these impoundments are footprints of our past. These dams that served a purpose centuries ago. But now, they don't serve that purpose anymore. And over the years, it's been more trouble to the environment than maybe it was ever worth. We're now just down the road below the spillway. It's how the mucky impoundment drains excess water after heavy rainfall. The controlled release of water from the dam pours into a special riverbed. This is the Carmen's River. About 10 miles long, it's one of the largest rivers on Long Island. We're as inland as you can get here, and being in a suburban setting adds more issues. Drainage into the conveyances, um, you know, sheet flow off of the streets, pipes that may discharge into this uh, water body. Kevin says the pollution and the temperature of the water from the impoundment are redefining the wildlife habitat here. There's only one way to really see what he's talking about, so we jump on in. And we're really dressed to impress. Water waders will help us hike downstream. Oh, you guys look great. We're ready for uh, some wading and getting into some mud. I'm cautioning you the first 50 feet are, is soft, and uh, we got to keep our equipment dry. Okay, I'm going to follow your lead. Well, here goes nothing. We're hoping to see how centuries of human intervention have accelerated the pace of climate change's impacts today. It's a very bizarre feeling. As the team and I push our way through the river's current, it feels like we're moving in slow motion. Just like Kevin said, the bottom feels mushy. There's a lot of muck from the riverbed getting turned up as we try to catch up with Kevin. He's got a walking stick. That was a smart move. This is uh, right where the spillway is delivering and spilling water into the back into the stream corridor. So we haven't gotten far at all right now, but immediately there's a difference. The water is actually moving. So we are in a section uh, by virtue of public parkland that is in a, a high quality state. So it hasn't been altered. But that um, movement of water, it already looks healthier. Absolutely. Um, Flowing water, especially flowing water is cold water. Kevin has a thermometer. He submerges it to take the river's temperature. Even though this water feels cold for me to walk around in, Kevin says he sees a problem. And the thermometer says? Yeah, about 64 degrees. That's too hot. Um, it, it's on the edge, certainly. Uh, and I will tell you that this heats up into the 70s. Um, you know, that's, that's warm water for trout. Native brook trout like the water at about 55 degrees Fahrenheit. So warming waters have impacted their breeding habits these days. Remember, the rising temperature is not totally climate change. It's from the impoundment baking in the sunlight. And that's not the only reason why the brook trout have issues. Much of this had uh, greater openness to it so the corridors for trout to swim uh, find you know uh, gravel bottom and spawning areas you know it was important habitat the 
excessive sediment has given rise to a, basically a burst of growth. The vegetation in the stream corridor almost uh, like applying a fertilizer. The sediment contains a lot of nutrients, great for plants, not so much for fish. And the overgrowth of plants distributes the flow of water differently. It creates pockets of still cloudy water. Kevin motions me over to a silt bank, an underwater pile of very fine sediment. He pokes it with his walking stick and a plume of silt emerges. This silt bank is essentially contained but it absolutely has transformed habitat. Uh, when you consider this area, um, you know, and you know, if it was gravel bottom, that was trout habitat. It's, it's been transformed. It's something different now. We don't spot any fish today, but there are some more signs of wildlife here compared to the impoundment up top. Oh, look at all the dragonflies. Oh, they're so beautiful. They've got like this... Damselflies. I'm sorry? Damselflies. Damselflies. They've got like these jet black wings yeah. with this scion kind of body. They are so cool. You no, know, the insects are so critical in these corridors, you know, for obviously trout and the, you know, the, the hatch uh, as a food source. So it's, um, you know, important that we maintain uh, the streams that are in uh, high quality as to the greatest extent possible as natural. So we, we are working diligently to move our elected officials and the, you know, the community to recognize uh, the benefits of dam removal and what this would mean for, you know, the habitat, the wildlife, uh, as well as uh, resiliency in the immediate community with uh, flood attenuation, cooler water, uh, high quality wetlands restored, wading birds, more fish, more wildlife. It's all good. You know, there's no downside to it. Kevin has been pushing for the removal of this dam for a long time. He says the faster flow of water through this river would completely rejuvenate this area. And of course, as we've been talking about the propensity of storm events and flooding, 23 acres of wetlands is a, a giant sponge in a storm event. So it'll take up that water as opposed to causing um, property damage on waterfront homes. As passionate an advocate that Kevin is, he acknowledges that people and the environment can also live harmoniously. It might just take a reevaluation of what nature means for our way of life. As a Long Islander and, and growing up near water, I always held that Long Islanders are defined by their waters. I mean, the, the coastal fringe as, as well as the uh, freshwater streams that we're standing in. And the environmental benefits from natural systems being intact and functioning, you know, as nature designed is, is so important for, you know, our, our uh, community lifestyle, you know, our quality of life. The plight of the Carmen's River gives us one example of a return to nature that can benefit communities on Long Island. To see effects of a return to nature on a larger scale, we're returning to a much bigger climate emergency unfolding on Long Island's south shore. Shaking out our water waders from hiking the Carmen's River, we head downstream to the marshlands that connect to the Great South Bay. We've been on this bay system a few times together, touring the historic bay houses and birdwatching in Hempstead, examining equitable solutions in Mastic Beach, and day drinking at the Albatross in Ocean Beach. Today, we're getting on a ferry back to Fire Island to visit 
the seven miles of developed communities and meet some of the people who live there all year round and talk about the existential threat of sea level rise and extreme storms. But first, the ferry station is home to the headquarters of the Fire Island National Seashore, the federal agency that monitors the island's wilderness. A big part of our mission is to um, you know, preserve these places for future generations. Jordan Raphael is a park biologist. Using good old science, he helps inform decisions on how to best maintain the 32-mile stretch of beach on Fire Island. Fire Island is, is a, such a delicate place, and I think, you know, it, it's going to get more difficult and difficult over time. Part of its job is to manage the sunken forest. He points to a map outside the ferry station, almost smack dab in the middle of Fire Island. The sunken forest is a critically imperiled ecosystem. There's only one other like it in the entire world. That's in New Jersey. The sunken forest, for lack of a better way to say it, is sinking. And there's a lot of these low elevated sections of, of sunken forest that um, are really being impacted by sea level rise. And the unique scenery is open to the public to enjoy. About a mile and a half of elevated boardwalk takes you through a canopy of these squiggly holly trees. They kind of look like something out of Dr. Seuss, and they're super old. The Sunken Forest is a old-growth holly maritime forest. It's primarily dominated by American holly. Peak recruitment occurred in the early to mid-1800s, and we have uh, some uh, dating back to the late 1700s that still persists in the sunken forest. The trees are protected on the ocean side by a double sand dune system, so the forest is sunken behind the dunes. Jordan has a lot of concerns about its future, though. What we used to have there at one time was this nice salt marsh. That's all eroded away, and now the, the trees are right up against the edge of the bay. So there's no longer a buffer area that protects the forest from water on the bay side. The trees are susceptible to salt spray and saltwater intrusion from under the ground, just like the vineyard we visited on the North Fork. I, I'm afraid that a lot of the work I'm doing in the sunken forest is essentially documenting the demise of it. Um, but even if that's the case, maybe maybe others can learn from it. You know, other areas can maybe learn from, from what we've seen out here. I hear from some folks that we can't engineer our, our, our way out of this problem. It's not like we can lift the sunken forest out of out of the Great South Bay and give it a, 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 a structure raise like we would a house or something like that. How do you manage for sea level rise? I cannot wrap my head around that. Sure, you can, you can raise structures, but how do you preserve natural habitats? Uh, I have no idea. When the Fire Island National Seashore was created, the federal agency mandated Fire Island be roadless to protect the natural beauty. So there are no cars on the island, other than emergency vehicles, of course. The only way to get out there is by boat. Sure beats swimming. I'm headed to the island to chat with some residents, so from Jordan's headquarters on the south shore, I hop on a ferry. It's about a half hour trip. Hi there, this is Rima Dael, WSHU station manager, and welcome to my kitchen. Um, this morning, I'm starting my day off with a croissant, heating it up in the microwave quickly, and then also making myself a cup of coffee. 
But I just want to take a moment to ask for your help and support to keep the stories that you hear on our air, the news and the music you rely on going. So please make a gift now to support all you hear on WSHU on our website at WSHU.org. And I hope you have a great day. The ferry drops me off in the community of Seaview. I step off the raised ferry terminal. There are more beach bags and wide-brimmed sun hats than I can count. I'm greeted by Susie Goldhirsch, a lifelong Fire Island resident. This place means everything to her, and her connection to this island runs deep. My great-grandmother came here in 1894. She built a house. It's still there. Uh, It's on the high ground. She was smart, smart lady. And we're now in our sixth generation of people who, no matter where we go in the world, this is where we, this is where we come back to. This is home. Catching up with Susie at the docks, she smiles and waves at everyone. She's actually the president of the Fire Island Association, which works to protect the interests of the 17 communities here. You might as well be the mayor by my take, because we're walking around and you're just saying hi to everybody. Well, part of it, yes, part of it is that I know a lot of people, but the other part is that Fire Islanders say hello to Fire Islanders, you know. I mean, everybody loves it here. Everybody's happy to be here, and you're happy to say hello to anybody you see on the walk. Susie's got a bike for me to borrow so we can make our way over to the ocean side. No cars, remember? Cars and driving is a controversial subject on the island, as everything on the island is controversial. Gotta be honest, it's been a few years since I've ridden a bike, but I manage. At the end of the bike path, there's a bridge over the dunes for a view of the beach. It's a bit of a gloomy morning, so it's quiet. Other than the sound of waves crashing and the peeps of a few shorebirds, it's really peaceful. You know, we're standing here, there's the wind, there's the sun, there's the ocean, there's the sand. It's so uncomplicated. Susie wants to introduce me to some of her friends, so we're back on the bikes. We zigzag through a grid of stone streets. Its names are alphabetical. Only two tight roads run east to west. Okay. We arrive at Luke and Lisa Kaufman's house. Welcome to our hot, sticky house. Hi, how are you? Hi, Lisa. Susie, I haven't seen you in forever. I know. I try to. I hear your voice a lot. I know. In those meetings. Hi, Luke. Hi. Um, here's our intrepid team. You remember Captain Luke. He manages the ferry company that got me here today. He raised a family here. His daughter is actually interning over with Jordan Raphael over at the Park Service. This place means a lot to them. I summered here in, from birth until the mid-70s and I moved out here year-round in the 70s. Water skiing, a lot of fishing, a lot of clamming, which, uh, you know, the clams have disappeared from these waters. And uh, it was just a, a great place to be. You know, uh, you were barefoot for uh, for three months a year. Being with what your job is and growing up here, I, I bet you're pretty, you're pretty good with the water. Yeah, I, uh, between having a, a family boat um, growing up and uh, and working the the bay on the ferries 
I mean, this this was our family home. My grandfather built this place for peanuts. There was nothing but beach grass for four blocks around here. Living a short walk to the ocean requires round-the-clock maintenance. Any, you know, salt water with anything, your vehicles, um, your bikes, <laughs> anything metal, anything, no, just, just the wear and tear from living so close. But it's not just that. It's It's the taxes. This community has very expensive dues and uh, the dues now are so incredibly out of sight. Uh, I mean, realistically, I can't afford to live in the town that I grew up in. As we saw on Mastic Beach, it's expensive to protect your community from storm surge. The National Seashore mandates Fire Island can't put in any hardened structures, like a seawall for protection. They have to work with the natural process. And Luke agrees, sometimes you have to fight nature with nature. I'm not a coastal geologist, uh, but I've spent a lot of time looking at this. And I find that none of that works. And so to prepare for hurricanes, they created a tax district to fund the replenishment of sand dunes. We were doing beach scraping where you take a very small amount of elevation and over 100 feet wide, you can make some pretty big dunes, and we did that ourselves. But Luke's community actually did pretty well during Superstorm Sandy, thanks to man-made dunes 20 feet above sea level. Pushed up white, clean white sugar sand, and we planted the heck out of it with American beach grass, and it worked really well. I started to get this feeling that Fire Islanders, in some ways, form these communities to preserve a sense of tradition. There are very few people I know who I have grown up with who are not still here. Long haulers, Luke calls them. Can you two tell me a little bit about the community here then? Tell me about how at different points of the year how the, the long haulers all get along. I mean, I'm, I want to I wanna really... <laughs> Susie, the president of the Fire Island Association, who's been sipping on a Bloody Mary, jumps in. People who live out here year-round are expert at bartering, you know, either services or stuff, right? You have topsoil, I have two-by-fours, you know, we'll make a deal. Um, so it's, it's, it transcends personality, and it becomes, we're all in this together. Susie and I are headed back to her house for some lunch. I tell her about my conversations with coastal scientists before I arrived on Fire Island. Cheryl Hapke worked at the United States Geological Survey when Sandy hit. She says Sandy was unlike any storm she had seen in her career. All along the entire length, you know, we drove the entire length of the island eventually, and pretty much every uh, oceanfront house had sustained significant, significant damage. There's a lot at stake on Fire Island, and as a barrier island, it's also vital to the protection of the mainland. Waves wash over the uninhabited sections, slowly rolling sand into the bay. That natural process rejuvenates the marshlands, like we saw on a much smaller scale on the banks of the Carmen's River. The barrier island and the marshland it nourishes also protects the mainland. You know, when storm waves come, um, they, the, the island takes the hit. By the time the waves reach the mainland, there's very little power left. You don't have the pounding waves to actually erode material. So if you were to take away the, the entire barrier island, island system along the, you know, the coast there, that, the, the mainland coast of Long Island would, would 
they start to erode and flood rapidly. Fire Island has a big job, and after centuries of taking the brunt of storms that hit our region, it's a wonder it's still here. Cheryl says it's because of us. You know, we build seawalls, we build, we re-nourish the beaches, we do everything to attempt to keep the beaches where we want them to be, the beaches and, and, and the marshlands. We, we, we want to hold them in place uh, for our own benefit. And we all pay taxes to raise homes and sand dunes so coastal communities can continue to survive, whether you live here or not. How long will that work? I mean, sand is not a renewable resource. So, so at some point in time, it will not be economically viable to continue to nourish the beaches to keep them in place. But no matter what, Mother Nature is going to do her thing. You know, people always ask me what Fire Island is going to look like in 50 to 100 years. Now, Fire Island could be a pearl of islands by that time, you know, due to, due to climate change and sea level rise. So there's no way to know for sure. But... I think we can say it's going to look a lot different than it does right now. This string of pearls Jordan talks about is much like you're standing on the beach with your feet in the water. Picture this. The tide comes in and washes over your toes. You dig into the sand. You're not going anywhere. This very well could be the future for some people who refuse to move from the coast. The water will rush around you and pull the sand from your heels. A pool of water forms beneath the soles of your feet as you stand on your tippy toes to get to higher ground. If you don't move, you can stand there for a while, but eventually the sand gives away. And if you're unsteady on your feet, you may be knocked over by the waves. The hope for the future is that there are people around you to help you back up. Ground is produced and mixed by Sabrina Grone and me, with editing from Harriet Jones. Dave Eisenstatter is our digital editor. Graphic art by Joshua Joseph. Kelly Hills Mucky and Sarah Ruberg did fact-checking and research. Anne Lopez's senior producer, Terry Sheridan, is news director. Tom Kuzer is program director. Music for the show is composed by Samuel Davies and Eric Harper. Special thanks to climate geeks and everyday people who let me into their communities so we can see how they're coping with climate change and sea level rise. This podcast was made possible by the Allen Alda Center for Communicating Science. Higher Ground is a production of WSHU Public Radio. For more, go to WSHU.org. Check us out for some photos and special stuff that we found along the way. 
and thank you for taking this journey with us. Brighter than the rest Among us you're the best But when the show comes to an end Who will watch you pretend You need a stage to light your life You never show your strife Don't you think it's a little strange Your face just stays the same I don't know if you've got a heart You don't show who you are to me You're just another name Who hides behind his fame Give it up, your cover's blown Like a needle to the hem You've been sewn, you can fight, you can play But you're hitched like a heart that is torn You're a stitch Are you scared, little man? Do you run from the sounds? They go creeping in the night Do you cringe from the voice in your head? Are you afraid to be alone? Do you go where it tells you to go? Have you never wondered why? There is nothing here at all You're just afraid to be alone you run from the void in your heart and you never wondered why there is nothing here at all there is nothing here at all